Bible reading today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 22. Please follow um, on the screen above or in your Bibles. I'm reading from the NIV version. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 22. Saul was 33 years old. Sorry, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. And now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Saul arrived, Sorry, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... You would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin when the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three detachments. One turned toward Ophrah in the vicinity of Shual, another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboam facing the desert. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole of, of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares Matoks, axes and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Well, as you can tell, we begin, return to our series that we started earlier on in the year on 1 Samuel. 
between now and at least the end of this school term will be in 1 Samuel. And to that end, there are connect groups starting up again. In the bulletin this morning, you would have uh, seen little cards. So I encourage you, if you're not in a connect group and you'd like to be, to take that out and to fill it in and to hand it in, either to Pastor David or simply into the little one of those boxes at the exits and they'll be collated and you'll be contacted. So I commend that to you. If you're not in a life group, not in a connect group, maybe think about doing that over this next point of the series, about six, seven weeks. Also in the, in the bulletin you'll see a little yellow slip. If you're visiting with us today you might like to draw, take some time to fill that in and hand that in so that we can uh, stay in touch with you and invite you to some of the yummy things that we've got planned together. Today is the day of transition for us as a church. <coughs> the Mandarin service have moved from the, congregation, uh, the conference room where they were meeting at 10.30. They're now meeting in the activity centre at 8.30. They're down there right now. This is their first Sunday. It's kicking off that for them. It's a new start and an early time for them. So please pray for them. They're filled with enthusiasm today. They have seven singers at the front in their choir. I said, is that enough? They said, no, we're going to grow. So they're filled with enthusiasm. So I commend that to you to support them. And not only in prayer, especially in prayer, but you may support them also after the service. You may have a chat with some of them and ask them how it went and let them know you're thinking of them. Cantonese, likewise, who did meet in this building at 10.30, will now be meeting in the Activity Centre from today at 10.30. That'll be their first Sunday service there today, after many years of being here in the auditorium. And the English service, which was in the Activity Centre, is returning here to the auditorium at 10.30. So for you who belong to the English congregations, then the 8.30 and the 10.30 service are both now in this room, in this auditorium, and both services will be duplicate. So, if you would like to think about maybe even join your 10.30 service and supporting them, maybe you want to sleep in on a Sunday morning, then now you have the opportunity to be in exactly the same room. And if that happens, then that will help the growth in this particular service. Okay? So we need to pray for that. Last night we had a Christmas in July and we had a wonderful time for those of you who came. It was a fundraising event. I think we raised about $3,000 for Care Outreach. So thank you again to those people. If you weren't here and you'd like to make a contribution, you can still do that. We're informed about the Ministry of Care Outreach again and challenged and reminded of the needs of uh, people out west, people who are doing it very, very tough and what difference we can make. Later on this year, you'll have another opportunity to be able to bring in uh, particular items which will be part of the Christmas run again as we've done over the last several years. Today is the last Sunday for some people as well. Uh, The Sampsons, the Smiths and the Wilsons go away for anything from six weeks to ten weeks on cruises and overseas trips and just doing it really, really tough. That's a lovely break for them and we trust that they'll have a safe and enjoyable and refreshing time. We're going to pray for them and for ourselves right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your divine purposes you founded this church. And yet you still have a purpose, a mission, a function for the church, for us to be achieving. Lord, today with these transitions of services into different locations, we thank you for this opportunity and for the growth that we expect that that will enable in all three congregations. We look to you, Lord, because you're the only one who can cause the church to grow. We pray that you would keep us ever faithful, faithful to you, to your word and to the gospel that we would be very clear and uncompromising 
and that we would join hands with you in the workers' mission in our local area, in our state, in our nation and in our world. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, as you did with Donna and Andrew, so that even now, today, you might tap some others on the shoulders and raise up other young people, other couples of whatever age or stage of life who might be called by you to serve you cross-culturally to spread the gospel in the kingdom of Jesus. So, Lord, to that end, we pray that you might be with our folks who are going to be travelling, bless them and give them safety and great joy as they see some of the beauty of this fallen world. Bring them home safe, refreshed, energised. Give them opportunities to be your servants and witnesses on this break. And we ask for your blessing upon our Mandarin and Cantonese brothers and sisters particularly, that you'll assist them in adjusting to a new space and that you'll give them the blessing of being rewarded, of being of growing together. Lord, for ourselves now we pray that you might speak to us through this portion of your word. May your will be clear and may our response be pleasing. We ask in the name of Jesus. Everybody said. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn with me back to chapter 10 just to do a quick catch-up on where we got up to with Saul. Back in chapter 10 and verse 8, we find, just to remind you quickly of the story, that Saul, who was Israel's first king, before he became king, had been out, were introduced to him as someone who was pursuing his father's donkeys. And in the process of that search, uh, he meets Samuel, whom he had not heard of before, and that he was invited to a feast where Samuel surprisingly informed him that God had intended great plans for him. Samuel gave him three signs and that these three signs were fulfilled pretty much immediately which then led to a public process where there was a selection of tribes and a selection of clans within a tribe and a selection of a family and then the selection of Saul, excuse me, God's chosen man to be Israel's king, the one that they had requested. Acts chapter 10, uh, Acts 1 Samuel chapter 10, uh, verse 8. Samuel told Saul, way back in the beginning on that first time they met, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come. Wait until I come and I will tell you what you are to do. It's very clear right from the beginning. Verse 17 of chapter 10. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah, said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up, Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and that oppressed you. But you now have rejected your God who saves you out of all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, see the man the Lord has chosen. There is no one like him among all the people. And then just chapter 12, verse 13 and following. Samuel again speaking to the people on his farewell address. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands and if both you and your king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. 
But if you do not obey the Lord, if you rebel against his commands, then his hand will be against you as it was against your father. And verse 24, at the end of the chapter, 25. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. That's the theme up until this chapter 13. And so we enter now this story, picking up this story of Saul and resuming the series for us. Saul is the king. Verse 1 has some textual issues associated with it and versions have different insertions. Verse 1 says that Samuel was blip years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for blip two years. The blips are actually misenumerals in the Hebrew text. And the NIV, along with many other English versions, because they look at the story in Acts 13 where the Apostle Paul is quoting this story and he says Saul reigned 40 years, so they insert the number 40 in here. And they say Saul was 30 years age because later on in 2 Samuel, that's how old David is when he became king. and It's what the Greek text says, the LXX, when they look at it. And so it's a guess. Is it the right guess? One conservative commentary, the NIV application commentary, in fact, says the author, and we think it was Samuel, whoever the author was when he wrote it, just put a dash. You've done this when you've done assignments or essays or things. Now Saul was, how old was he? I'll find out. Just put the dash. Uh, he was that many years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel and left that blank. I'll fill that in later and he never came back to fill it in and so it's just one of those omissions in the word of God. That's possible, unlikely. There is another way, which is, I think is increasingly accepted amongst conservative readers of the scriptures. The Hebrew text says literally that Saul was the son of a year. That probably means, this is an interpretation, but likely, that Saul has been a king for a year. It's at the end almost of his first year as a king and he would reign over Israel for two years. And the two years is referring to perhaps a period of time which we'll cover when he reigned before he was rejected by God as king, which is going to happen in chapter 15. In this chapter, his family line is rejected. But in chapter 15, he is rejected. And perhaps the author is saying to us, Saul was a king for a year, the son of a year. And he only reigned for two years. How come? Such a bright promise. Why did it only last such a short time before disaster happened? Well, this chapter and the next two chapters will explain that to us. So let's work our way through the story. Verses 1 to 7. There are about three paragraphs in this story, and so three headings. It's Saul's delayed obedience, is what I've called it. He picks a fight with the Philistines, and he was meant to do it pretty early on. Back in chapter 10, it's a subtle reference. The Spirit of the Lord, Samuel says, will come upon you in power. You will prophesy amongst them and your heart will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, Samuel says, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Do whatever your hand finds to do. That's Samuel's reference, probably, saying to Saul, our number one problem are these blooming Philistines. 
they're all over the place. They've got a garrison here, they've got a garrison there, and as you read later on in the chapter, we can't even have our own weapons. We've got no blacksmiths and we want to sharpen our farming tools, we have to go to them and they don't do that for free, they even charge us to do that. We're being oppressed by them. Saul is the new king. Samuel says to him, when the Spirit of God comes upon you and when you are the king, do whatever your hand finds to do. God is with you. Get rid of them. That was the the message. Well, he'd been a king for a year, maybe two, depending on how you read verse 1. He hadn't gotten around to it. When Saul became king, he went back to the farm. But in this chapter, verse 2, Saul finally steps up, does what Israel wanted him to do. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel to be in his standing army. Up until this point, Israel never had an army. They had a militia that when there was an oppression from a neighbouring country or force, that they would simply blow the trumpet and people would leave their farms and come and be a ragtag army together and in a united sort of way they would defeat the enemy. They were a militia. They weren't trained soldiers. But now they have a king. Kings have armies. Saul picks 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at that place called Michmash. They're all in about the centre of the land probably so that he could move quickly to any direction to wherever there was going to be a problem. 2,000 with him and he gave 1,000 men, 1,000 men to his number one son, Jonathan. And I think instructed Jonathan, just go up three or four miles to where there's a, Hebrew, a Philistine garrison and off them. That's what Jonathan does, verse 3. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, three or four miles away. Philistines heard about it. They weren't happy. From their perspective, Israel has broken their truce. But Saul got a trumpet and he blew it. He not only summoned Joshua's thousand men to return to him, but he's now summoning the rest of the militia, the people that he had sent back to their tents to await the mobilisation call. Well, now that call comes. The people of Israel come and assemble with him. He, uh, Saul says in verse 3, when he blows the trumpet, let the Hebrews hear. Let's get this job done. He hadn't done it for a year or two. Finally, he's stepping up. He's doing what God wanted him to do. In the process of getting rid of this small outpost of the Philistines, he had provoked a sleeping giant. Just what God wanted him to do. God intended to remove the Philistines, I think, from the land of Israel. Verse 4. So all Israel heard, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become an offence to the Philistines. They've become stinky. They don't like them. And the people were summoned to join Saul. That's where he is, in Gilgal. It's a little bit of an overkill in terms of their response. And again, the text is translated two ways. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel. The NIV says, with 3,000 chariots. They've got 3,000 soldiers. The Philistines turn up with 3,000 chariots. And in each of the chariots, there are two soldiers. So they've got 6,000 charioteers. And then on top of that, they've got an army or a militia or whatever it is that numbers like sand on the seashore. That was the promise that God had given to Abraham that I will bless you and multiply you and your descendants will number like the sand on the seashore. And now here is Israel's enemies prospering, being numerous and coming against them. Things are out of kilter. So Saul comes against He's got 3,000. The Philistines come with, NIV says, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and innumerable number of soldiers. The ESV 
it doesn't have 3,000 chariots, it's got 30,000 chariots. It's a thing to do with translations and numbers and nobody really knows. But that's unbelievable. 30,000 chariots. And you might think, what's a chariot? Well, you know, it's a little cart drawn by a horse or maybe two horses. And given our modern technology and the tanks and planes and jets that we got, we think, chariots. Well, I tell you, if you're walking down the street and somebody's riding a horse and they've got a wooden cart behind it and they're coming at you, you would get out of the road, wouldn't you? Well, here come the Philistines with their armed force against Saul. So how does Israel respond to that? Saul has finally stepped up, done what God wanted him to do, provoked this fight. It's an overwhelming situation. That's what God wanted. God was going to show, just like... If you jump ahead to next week, chapter 14, verse 6, Jonathan says to his armour, come on, let's go over to another outpost and deal with these fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. Remember the story of Gideon? 32,000 soldiers whittled down to 300. God wins. God doesn't need numbers. God just needs people who are obedient and wanting to work with him and doing it his way, not their way. So this massive Philistine force comes against the Israel. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw their situation was critical, Defcon 4, and that the army was hard-pressed, what did they do? Well, they hid in caves, in the jungle, among the rocks, in the tombs, in pits, anywhere they could find to hide. Verse 7, some of them even said, oh, this is not good, we're going to lose. They left the country, or they left the area, they went across the Jordan over to the land of Gad and Gilead. They, they left the area totally. We're not up for this. They'd rather put up with the Philistines. Saul remained in Gilgal. And the troops who were with him were up for it. They were ready for victory. Actually, it says they were quaking with fear. Here they are, 3,000 men against this massive horde, a multitude of enemy soldiers. And what have they got? Axes, shovels, goads. They don't have weapons. Philistines wouldn't let them have them. Saul and Jonathan had a sword each. So here they are, these soldiers in a standing army, unarmed, bravely standing with Saul at the place where Samuel had told him to be, Gilgal. And all the troops were quaking with fear. Saul finally did what God wanted him to do when he became king. He was eventually obedient. He was delayed. But the commendable thing about Saul, at least in this part of it, it's never too late to obey the Lord's will. If you've been putting off doing something in your life, it's not too late for you today to say, Lord, I, don't want, to, I want to delay no longer. I want to do what you have called me to do. I want to be obedient to you. And note also that when you do step up and when you are obedient to the Lord, that sometimes, it leads into a difficulty. Sometimes obedience leads into a storm. It certainly does for Saul here. It certainly did for the apostles, disciples in John chapter 6 when Jesus tells them to get into a boat and go across to the other side and he goes up the mountain to pray and when he's up the mountain praying he can see them and they're in a storm. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do and they're in a storm of their life and scared for their life. Doing God's will can cause short-term difficulties. Not always. 
doing God's will is the best thing to do. Being the centre of his will is the place of blessing and of protection. Even in tough times, being God uh, aligned with God's purposes gives you peace. Though things may go bad, at least you are in the centre of his will as he works his purposes out. The three young guys in Babylon, when the king threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace, right in the centre of God's will, doing exactly what God wanted, and their incredible response. Our God that we serve is able to deliver us, and he will. But if he doesn't, we want the king to know that we will not bow down to your idol. We will remain true to our God. That's to be our response. This brave assault from Jonathan had certainly led them into a difficult situation. Sometimes that happens. And so now we find Saul with reenacted obedience. He's kicked it back into gear. But the next paragraph is going to reveal to us his failure. And it's a sad failure, and it's a failure that we are capable of, need to be aware of, and to avoid. So here Saul is at Gilgal awaiting Samuel, watching these enemy probably growing day by day. He waited seven days, it says, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come. Undoubtedly Saul had his generals or advisers saying to him, come on, let's attack, let's get this over and done with. Now is the time to act. If we keep waiting, they're just going to get stronger and stronger. But somehow he resisted. If there was any of that pressure, he resisted it. He did the right thing. He was waiting. As Samuel had told him to wait. But while he waited, and as the days passed, soldiers started to leave. That's when they started hiding and running and the 3,000 is going to be reduced and if you jump down to verse 15 you'll see that it's reduced down to 600 2,400 of his army left and he's watching it evaporate day by day and until the seventh day that's too much Samuel said wait seven days this is the seventh day he's into the seventh day and so he finally takes matters into his own hands He was supposed to wait for Samuel. He was supposed to wait for God's instructions through Samuel. And those instructions would have told him how he was to fight this battle. 600 men against thousands. Not impossible odds for God, but frightening odds for us humans. And whatever it was that entered his mind, he panicked. It's the seventh day. We're not told the time. I imagine it's like the afternoon of the seventh day. And it's too many have gone. Samuel's not coming. So he takes matters into his own hands. He does something which I don't think he was supposed to do, king or not king. He's not a priest. So assuming he did it himself, he may have commanded a priest if there was a priest there to do it. Saul says, verse 9, bring me the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And then Saul offers up the burnt offering. I need God's favour. I need to do this religious worship act. Otherwise God won't smile upon me. I haven't got a clue how to run this battle because God hasn't told me. But I need to do this religious activity. For Saul, you could understand that for him, performing a religious ritual was far more important. It was essential. Far more important than the prophetic word 
the word of God through Samuel and waiting for it. I can maybe go without that, but I can't go without this. It's a real misunderstanding. He has done the wrong thing. It was a spiritual act. He was seeking God's favour. That's commendable. And maybe we can sympathise with him. What would we do in that situation? be very tempting simply to face the practical realities of life and they'll play the seemingly unreasonable requirements of obedience and trust. Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to be fully obedient to God. Well, for us, as it is here for Saul, it's a test. Will you pass the test? God was testing him. Did God intend to set Saul up for sale? No. He didn't want him to fail. He wanted him to succeed. I think God had every intention of honouring that he was the man he had chosen and somehow in the providence of God, Saul's family would have been, it would have changed history. His family would have been the divine, the kingly line. But because of this chapter and the next couple, Saul is laid aside and the penalty is that his family will no longer be the kingly line. Just as he is finished, Murphy's law kicks in. Samuel arrives. Can Samuel see the smoke still going up? Can he smell the offering? Uh, Saul was going to offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. He has just done the burnt offerings and Samuel arrives. He hasn't finished. He's in between sacrifices. And when Saul sees Samuel, he's relieved. Oh, at last, you're here. And he goes to him. And Saul is very clear in what he says to him. Saul failed to value God's word. Saul was impatient with God's timing, God's will. What God wanted him to do, he nearly did it. Wait seven days, wait till Samuel comes. He waited into the seventh day. He's almost fully obedient. I wonder for us if there are times when we are almost fully obedient. But because we aren't totally, we miss out. There are consequences to our choices and we fail that test. Something worth examining. Well, then is the great tragedy of this chapter. Saul not only failed to honour God's word and to value it, went for the religious ritual, not waiting for God's word through the prophet, he failed to repent. He was caught red-handed in the midst of being disobedient and he doesn't confess. He comes up with excuses. Verse 11, Samuel says to him, What have you done? Samuel confronts him. Very clear, straight to the point. Because of Samuel's confrontation, Saul sort of pushes back a little bit. He's caught red-handed in the act of disobedience. We all sin. Leaders sin. Godly leaders sin. But when godly people sin, they admit it. They repent. They'll come to the point of dealing with it. Saul doesn't. He rationalises. He reasons. He offers excuses. What have you done? What have I done? At least I was here. I saw the troops leaving. You didn't. You weren't here. You said you would come and you didn't. We needed to act. The Philistines are assembling. And I had to offer these sacrifices to seek God's favour. I was forced to do something. I knew that I didn't want to do it. I was compelled to do it. These are his reasonings, verses 11 and 12, that he says. 
when I saw this happening, then I thought this, and so I did it. But he doesn't say I did the wrong thing. It was a wrong act. And he, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, what have you done? Well, for Adam, that was the woman. For the woman, it was the serpent. For Aaron, when he made the golden calf, Aaron, what have you done? It wasn't me, it was the people. We just threw this stuff in the fire and poof, out popped this thing. <clears throat> you read the story, that's what he says. It's, yeah, you're right, I did the wrong thing and I need God's forgiveness. No, he doesn't go there. That's where we need to go. What was Saul's sin? Well, two things. He desecrated the worship of God by offering up that, those sacrifices that he ought not to have done, as I've already spoken about. But secondly, and this is the point of this passage, his sin was that he disobeyed God's command. Samuel was very clear, chapter 10, verse 7. Go to Gilgal, and when you're there, wait seven days until I come. Wait for me. And when I get there, I will tell you what instructions God has on how you should fight the battle. Wait for me. Well, Saul waited into the seventh day, but he did not wait for Samuel. He took matters into his own hands. So his sin was that he disobeyed God's word. Sound harsh? At least it's clear. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Saul thought that in this situation it was best, if not even necessary, to violate God's will. But it's never right to do so. Here is a great truth. Listen to this. Small matters like this one. Small matters of negligence can be major indicators of a heart not fully devoted to God. Little areas of disobedience in our life can be clear and major indicators that we are not fully passionate in following the Lord Jesus. We may appear to others to be, but these little areas of rebellion, of sin, of delay, of disobedience are indicating that we are not there and we need not to excuse it, we need to repent of it. That's what Samuel says to Saul. He says, now because of your acts, this is what's going to happen. Verse 13, you acted foolishly. Foolishly, you did the wrong thing. You haven't commit the commands God gave you. Therefore, your family's not going to be on the line. And now God has sought out a man who is after his own heart. God is looking for a king. God is looking for a person who is sold out to being fully obedient to him. God is looking for that person. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9 says God is still looking for that person. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth seeking those whose hearts are fully devoted to him, that he might strengthen them and encourage them. God looked amongst us this morning. Would he find us? Would he find among us people who are fully devoted, wanting to be fully obedient, not delaying, not excusing, passionate. Verse 15, the tragedy of the chapter, and much greater than Saul ever realised, then Samuel left. The word of God departed. 
Lots of other things had gone wrong for him. The soldiers were slipping away. He didn't have weapons. The Philistines were coming and they were raiding freely and they were oppressing the country. As bad as all that was, this is the tragedy. Then Samuel left. He was stripped of the word of God. He was on his own without the divine command of directing affairs in his life. Verse 17 to 18, the Philistines raid into three different areas having their own will, removing all of the blacksmiths and ensuring that Israel cannot rise up again. What do we learn from this? Well, I think we need, unlike Saul, to value the word of God, not to take it for granted, but to be thankful to God for it and to be committed to reading it, listening to it and doing it. There's a great story in this commentary by Dale Ralph Davis. I want to share this with you, just quickly. Uh, Davis says that kingship is prone to very subtle forms of pride. It's understandable. James VI of Scotland was notoriously rude when attending worship services. James VI of Scotland. On one occasion he was seated in the gallery with several others of his court with him and Robert Bruce is preaching. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. That wouldn't happen here, would it? So the king is up in the gallery. Robert Bruce is preaching. The king starts talking to the people who are sitting beside him. Bruce paused. The king fell silent. The minister resumed. So did the king. Bruce ceased speaking a second time. Same result. The king went silent. When the king committed a third offence, Bruce turned and addressed the king directly and he says this. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings when the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel and it becomes all the petty kings of earth to be silent. Wow. Yeah, Robert the Bruce died that day. The <laughs> don't know what happened that day. Brave man though, isn't it? Who understood the value of the Word of God. And we need to maintain that value on the Word of God. Because we are evangelicals, because we are believers in the Gospel and the Lord Jesus, and because we love the Bible, one of our greatest sins is that we defend the Bible and talk about the Bible we just don't read it, we just don't study it and we don't obey it we are Bible believers we need to be Bible doers Bible lovers not just talk the talk but we need to walk the walk Amen? We need to value the word of God that's certainly a lesson from this chapter we need also to be reminded as I have reminded you that God is looking for those who are fully committed to him. He wants and deserves entire consecration, full obedience to his will, full submission, 24-7, every day. He wants us to be available and at his service. God gave Saul a chance to prove his heart, but he failed the test. God will likewise give us opportunities, give us tests. Brothers and sisters, let us not fail. And if we do, then not like Saul. Let's confess, repent and return. 
and again offer ourselves to him completely. The best illustration I have for that is I have told you on numerous occasions before, but I tell you again, of a little boy in Scotland went to a Presbyterian church, I don't know what church, Presbyterian church, and the offering came and his pockets were empty. And when the offering plate came around, he took the offering plate and he put it on the ground and then he stood in it. And he was saying to God as an act of worship, I don't have any money to give and I wish I did, but I give myself completely to you. That's what God wants. Us to give ourselves completely to him. He is worthy of it. He deserves it. He requires it. So let us do it. Saul was a man who was not a man. Saul, as a man, was not one after God's own heart. That description will be used of David, but even David stumbled and fell. But it's pointing forward to one, our Lord Jesus, the ultimate king, who was a man after God's own heart, who was fully obedient, who served, who died, who saves, who redeems us and who calls us to join him and to follow his example of being fully obedient to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. Thank you for forgiving us for our sins. Lord, we also want to thank you for our King and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We pray that he might live in us, that he might reign in us, work in us and help cause us to follow you closely, obediently. Lord, if there are areas of our life where we have been delaying obedience, then here today, help us to repent, to forsake that attitude and to resolve to be obedient immediately. For those of us, Lord, who uh, have areas of our life where we are not completely obedient, cause us to be repentant. Help us all to obey you wholeheartedly. Help us to look to you in faith and to trust you when we are tested. We ask these things in the name of our King, the Lord Jesus. Amen.